This is Pastor Devin, and I just want to say thanks for joining us, and I hope and pray that this message is an encouragement to your life today. I just want to uh, brag on you for uh, just a couple seconds. Um, last week, we had uh, a guest speaker here who's planting a church in Columbus, Ohio, and a central point, and it was the first time that we as a church were able to invest in something other than just the maintaining of, of Connect on a weekend uh, as a church body. And, um, you know, some, some people would say that it's not wise for an eight-week-old church plant to be bringing someone else in to take a love offering and, and to do that. But we knew that it was right. I knew that it was something that would put feet to what we've been learning as a body together. And our, our offering for uh, Pastor Jason and Heidi for Central Point last week was $10,500 out of us, out of this. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, so just a, a real moment of, of real pride, uh, the correct kind of pride um, in your ability to catch uh, this idea that we should be the most generous people in the world. And if we should be the most generous people, then the church should be the most generous entity that exists on the planet. And uh, so just to see that happen uh, in your lives over the last few weeks has been amazing. Thank you, Trent and Brandy, for the reminder of why we give. And it prompted um, for this last uh, session on the blessed life, it really prompted the idea for us in this final weekend of this series the idea of what we're going to focus on today, and that simply is the motivation of giving. Uh, we've looked at firsts, we've looked at multiplication, we've looked at mammon. Of course, we had Pastor Jason last week for the final season of this uh, series. We're going to look at the motivation, the motivation of giving. Why is it that we really give? <clears throat> if you put God first in your finances, it will start to spill over in every other area of your life. Um, why? Because it changes your heart. Uh, Trent talked about that. Here are a few truths and principles that will change people's hearts more than anything else, I believe. And that is the idea that when you open yourself up to look for places to be generous. And when our hearts are changed, it changes our marriages, it changes our health, it changes our stress, it changes anxiety, fear. Did you know that people experience a lot of health issues today because of finances. Do you know that? Why? Because we, we worry. And so when God changes our heart in this area, because he's the owner of it all, we've talked about that, we don't own anything, he can have anything he wants, and we're going to live by this principle. But when that happens, it changes every area of our lives. That's what we've been talking about. So today, turn with me if you have your Bibles, if you have your iPad or your phone and you version or Bible Gateway, whatever you use, or on the screens, it'll be there. Malachi chapter 3, one of the most familiar verses that talks about this idea of generosity and giving. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Just a uh, brief side note here. The entire book of Malachi is all about returning to God. Um, it's, it's mainly about returning to God in three areas. Uh, finances, family, and worship. Um, so returning to God in, in your worship, 
returning to God in your family, and returning to God in your finances. The book of Malachi focuses, it revolves around those three things. And God says, I want you to get these three things right. And he's talking about our finances here in this portion of it. Verse 7, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Verse 8, this is God's answer to how his people return to him. God's answer is this. He answers actually with a question. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. That's not really the answer you're looking for from God. Um, But you say, in our response, well, in what way have we robbed you? And God's answer is this. In tithes and offerings. And you are cursed with a curse. I just want to remind you, verse 6, God said, I do not change. He doesn't change. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. The only place in Scripture that we know of that God actually encourages us to test him. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Verse 11, and... I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Um, Part of me wants to apologize for those of us that are first-time guests, and you're here visiting family, and you've been able to celebrate Thanksgiving, and here you come to visit uh, on a weekend, and we're talking about giving. It's just uh, the way you've hit us kind of in the season of of our church. The thing we have to understand, though, is this. What God is really after is not our wallets. He's after our hearts. Um, He was never after the outward things. He's always been after our hearts. All throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, Jeremiah 4, talks about even our hearts being uncircumcised. God has always wanted to change our hearts. And giving will change your heart faster than anything, because it has to do with your treasure. Matthew chapter 6, very familiar verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, think about that. Let's say you, uh, you invest in a stock, um, and all of a sudden you find yourself checking the paper, getting online, finding status updates, you're looking at MSNBC at the ticker at the bottom of the screen to see how the stock that you've invested in is doing. Now, prior to investing in that stock, you never checked on it. You never looked on the paper. You weren't signing up for status updates on your phone. You, even, you didn't care about that stock until you put your treasure into it. And when you put your treasure there, your heart will go there too. Uh, it's okay to have, listen, it's, it's wonderful to have material things, but if we want our heart to be in the house of God, in the kingdom of God, our heart follows our treasure. So for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart is led. It follows your treasure. We often misquote this verse. We flip it, and you'll hear it say, well, the Bible says where your heart is, there your treasure. No, 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 no. It's where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Wherever you put your treasure, it's where your heart's going to be. How many know when the market crashed and fell, we had many sad people? Why? Because a lot of people lost their treasure. 
and your heart is connected to, it follows your treasure. God's not after your treasure. He's after your heart. And the way that he gets there is through your treasure. Okay, go back to the verse in Malachi. You know, there are moments when I really wish these verses in Malachi would have been in the New Testament. Um, He... We miss this by 15 or so verses of just getting into the New Testament. Um, And there are times when I said, you know, God, why didn't you put this in the New Testament? Um, How many know it's right where he wanted it to be? It's right where he wanted it to be. Remember what God says, Malachi, I am the Lord. I do not change. He doesn't change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of the things that's been fun for me throughout this series is to address questions, and I'm going to do that this morning, thoughts, uh, even pushback on some of the ideas that we've presented um, throughout this series. And uh, often we have people that, that want to separate the Old Testament and the New Testament and law and grace. Everyone who's ever been saved is getting there by grace. No one is going to get there by the law. But God doesn't change. I found myself thinking, man, why did you put those verses in the New Testament? They're right where he wants them to be. So three things this morning that I'm going to somewhat review and address some questions, some thoughts we've had throughout this series, and then some new ideas as well. Number one is this. Tithing is a test. Tithing is a test. It's a test of your heart. In my time in ministry, you know, the the people that I've discovered that talk against tithing are typically hard-hearted people. Um, I've talked to people for years and people who, who love God and are open to God and they say, man, I, I'm not only giving my tithe, I'm giving above and beyond. You know what they say? They say, I'm just so blessed. Why? Because tithing is a test of your heart. Not only is this the only place in the Bible where he encourages us to test God, but it's also the place where he tests us. It, it's a mutual testing And he said, I'll take 10% and you can have the rest. And what he finds out is the people that are going to make up excuses, the people that are going to twist scripture, that are going to argue, that are going to do everything they can to hold on to it. It's it's not about the 10%. It's a test of your heart. I've had people call me in this this season and they say, okay, so do I I tithe on the gross or the net? Right? I say, I don't know. Do you want a gross blessing or a net blessing? What, what portion do you want to be blessed on? Um, the word tithe means tenth. And we get caught up in all of the, the semantics of how can we hold on to just a little bit more. It's not a test of you. It's a test of your heart. As an example, let me, let me you know, ten, tenth is always, the number ten has always been about testing throughout Scripture. How many plagues were there in Egypt? Ten, yeah, this is not a trick question. You know, he's testing, he's testing the Israelites, he's testing Pharaoh. How many times did God test the Israelites when they're wandering in the wilderness? He tested them ten times, that's right. Uh, How many times were Jacob's wages changed? Just trust me on that one. It's ten, yeah, you're catching on, it's very good. How many days was Daniel tested? Ten. How many virgins were there? You remember five without oil, five with oil, I'm helping you on that one, five plus five is... Ten, yeah, okay. How many days of testing are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2? Ten. How many disciples are there? Very good, okay. 
I'm just, just testing you there. The number 10 represents testing all throughout the Bible, and God tests us with a tenth. This passage, to me, seems so simple. Think about this. If I tithe and give offerings, I'm blessed. If I don't, I'm cursed. Hmm. Let's see. Blessed, cursed. Uh, I'm, I'm not a smart man, Jenny, but uh, I'm going to choose blessed. It's not hard to figure out. Here's, the other, here's another argument. Here's one that I've heard this week. I'm a Christian, so I can't be under a curse. Jesus bore the curse of the law. Yes, he did. That's true. He did bear the curse of the law, and we are not under the curse of the law. But does that mean that we can live any way we want without consequence or ramification? No. Do you believe that you can be blessed? Do you believe you can live any way you want and still be blessed? You say, well, I understand that I can be blessed and not blessed. Well, the word for not blessed in the Bible is cursed. Well, I just don't believe that as a Christian that I can be cursed. Jesus bore the curse of the law. Okay, let's, let's think about this. Did Jesus bear the sickness, our sickness on the cross? Yeah. Matthew chapter 8, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That's what the Bible says. Did he bear our sickness on the cross? Yes, he did. Let me ask you something. As a Christian, as a believer, have you ever been sick? Well, what do you have to do when you're sick? You have to appropriate by faith what Jesus did on the cross for you. So yes, Jesus did bore our curse of sickness, but we still get sick. He bore our sickness. But yes, as a Christian, you've experienced sickness. Here's another one, 1 Peter chapter 2. Did Jesus bear our sin on the cross? He bore our sickness. He bore our sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Let me ask you something. As a believer, have you ever sinned? Well, as a believer, what do you have to do? You appropriate by faith what Jesus already did on the cross for you. So he bore our sins, but we've all sinned. He bore our sicknesses, but we've all been sick. He also bore our curse. But many of us have been living under the curse because of our hearts. Because of a hardened heart, because we don't allow God to do a work and have control in this area of our lives. Here's another argument. Here's another one that I've already touched on, I'll circle back on. Tithing took place under the law. We're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. That's why I wish those 15 verses would have been out of the way and you could just put it in the New Testament. Yes, I believe that we're all under grace. But my question for you would be, if it was wrong under the law, is it now right under grace? You see, that's where it doesn't line up. Yes, we are under grace. You're saying then that everything that was wrong under the law is now right under grace? But yet, better yet, are you saying that you can pick and choose which things are now right and wrong under grace? For instance, since, since I'm under grace now, let me just tell you a few lies about my mom and dad. Would that be all right? I mean, I'm under grace now. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. And since I'm not under the law anymore, I can just tell some lies. And No, I can't do that. Why? Because lying was wrong under the law. It's also wrong under grace. Now listen to me. Not only is something wrong under grace if it's wrong under the law, but if something was right under the law, is it now wrong under grace? 
See what I'm saying? Is, is lying still wrong? Yes. Is stealing still wrong? Yes. If lying and stealing were wrong under the law, they're both still wrong. There are principles all throughout the Bible that don't change. Remember, verse 6 on Malachi chapter 3, I do not change. So what you're saying is, even though something was wrong under the law, doesn't make it right under grace. Well, if something was right under the law, is it now wrong? No. Tithing was right then, and it's right now. Now, let me show you some scripture that validate that. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, this is Jesus talking now. He says, I came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. And if anyone ever teaches you to disobey what's right under the law, that person is going to be called least in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. That's not right to do that. He says there are things that are right under the law that are right under grace. And there are things that are wrong under the law that are wrong under grace. So we can't disregard something just because it happened in a different part of God's law. There are principles that run all throughout the scripture. Jesus goes on to say that if your righteousness doesn't exceed the Pharisees and the scribes, you're not going to heaven. Think about this. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was based on what? The law. In essence, Jesus comes as grace. And grace says, you need to do more than the law does. I want you to hear this. The law says... Do this. Grace comes along and says, do this and then some. You need to be more righteous than the law. And then Jesus gives us some examples. So often we use this idea of living under grace as as a a lower standard, a lower bar. Matthew chapter 5, though, listen. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it, that it was said to those of old, that you shall not murder. Question. Where Where did they hear you shall not murder? The law, Ten Commandments, right? And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, this is Jesus, grace says that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Under the law, I could be mad at you, but I couldn't kill you. I couldn't pull out a sword and just... But under grace, listen, look what he just said. Under grace, I can't even be mad at you. In other words, if I'm going to live under grace, I'm going to do more than the law said. Look at the next verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Where do they hear that? Ten Commandments, the law. But I say, grace says, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Listen, this is for, it requires more. The law says you can't commit adultery. Grace says you can't even think about it. And if you think about it, it's wrong. Grace requires more. Grace does not allow you more flexibility and more freedom. You following me on this? Grace requires more than the law. Next one, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, grace says, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Grace comes along and says, it takes more. It requires more. Okay, the law said give 10%. Okay, the law said give 10%. What do you think grace would say? Well, I don't have to give because I'm under grace now. Really? Because Jesus came along and said grace required more. 
Okay. Next time someone says to you, I don't tithe because I was no longer under the law. I'm under grace now. You can say, okay, great. You're under grace? That's awesome. That means you give more than 10%. That's wonderful. Because grace always does more than the law. Okay? Second point. Tithing is a test. Second point here. Tithing is biblical. If I haven't proven that to you already, I'll try even harder here. There are, there are people that simply don't tithe because they don't think it's biblical. I just want to show you some scripture that validate uh, this idea. Genesis chapter 14. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. He's blessing Abraham here. And he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe. This is Genesis chapter 14. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abraham comes back from a victory. He has increased. And the first thing he does, 500 years before the law, is he bring a tithe of that increase to Melchizedek. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about Cain and Abel, right? Abel bring his first fruits as an offering. to the, That's 2,500 years before the law. It's amazing to me that people can think that tithing started with the law. It was long before the law, just like not lying or stealing or killing was long before the law. Those things were wrong before the law was ever there. Genesis chapter 28. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. There's the principle again. This is Jacob, 500 years before the law. This is Jacob. He just has this in his heart. To be a giver. Something in his heart says, I'm going to give God a tenth. Deuteronomy chapter 26. Verse 1 and 2. And it shall be, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all of the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket, and go to the place where your Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. A little further down in the text, verse 13. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow according to all of your commandments which you have commanded me. There you have an example there of tithe and offering. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for unclean use or given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look at that verse 13. He says, I have removed the holy tithe from my house. I've set it apart, set it aside. Haven't used it for myself. Haven't used it for vacation. I haven't used it to pay the kids tuition. I set it aside first. So I've removed it from my house. I've taken it to the place where the Lord has chosen his place, his name. So clear. Now to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 23. This is Jesus talking again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, which are basically flowering plants, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now this, this is one of the best scriptures on tithing. It's in the New Testament. Jesus is talking here. Now follow me. Jesus says, you pay a tithe on every little thing, but you neglect justice, mercy, and faith. And then Jesus says, you ought to have done that, but don't leave the other undone. Why? Because under the law, but grace requires 
Why didn't Jesus say, you don't need to do that anymore because you're under grace? Doesn't anyone want to just volunteer to argue with Jesus here for a moment? Jesus said, you ought to do it. That right there for me is enough. That's enough. Jesus says, yes, do that, but don't leave the others undone either, okay? Last point, tithing is a benefit. Tithing is a benefit. Tithing is a test. It's biblical, and it's a benefit. Second Chronicles chapter 31. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Basically what he's saying here, they've, they've gotten off course, Hezekiah here, and he recognizes that they need to be giving their support and tithes so the priests and Levites can devote themselves to the word of God. Verse 5. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine and oil and honey and all of the produce of the field. They brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah, who dwelt in the cities of Judah, brought the tithe of oxen and sheep, also the tithe of holy things, which were consecrated to the Lord their God. They laid in heaps. In the third month, they began laying them in heaps, and they finished in the seventh month. It took them four months. Listen, they've gotten off track. They go back to being according to God's commandment. It takes them four months to catch up. They're so far behind. It takes them four months. And then when Hezekiah and the leaders came and saw the heaps, verse 8, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps, and Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zadok, answered him and said, Since the people began bringing the offerings into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and had plenty to have plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people, and what is left is this great abundance. Tithing is a benefit. The Bible says that every word be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. I've been uh, in ministry now for nearly 20 years, and I just want every word that I say to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Dad and I in ministry now for four, dad's been in ministry for four plus decades. Between the two of us, we've counseled with a lot of people through the years. We've talked to a lot of people about this subject. Let me just tell you, everyone who tithes gives me the same testimony. Everyone. Everyone who tithes gives me the same testimony. And everyone who doesn't tithe gives me the same testimony. Let every word be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let me tell you what the witnesses have told Dad and me through the years. Everyone who tithes says the same thing. I am so blessed. I'm just so blessed. God has been so good to me. They all say that not one of them says anything differently to me through the years. And all the people that, that don't tithe give me the same testimony. I, I can't afford to tithe. Now, we could be Forrest Gump here again. Let's figure this out. Tithe, blessed. Don't tithe. Can't afford. It's so simple to me. Why would we argue so adamantly against something that is a benefit to our lives? Okay, let me, let me do it this way. Let me have a few guys help me out with this, this deal here. Evan, you stand up for me. Just stand up right there, yeah. And, uh, and James, you stand up here. Yeah, just stand right up there. And uh, who else wants to join me here? Anybody want to volunteer? I just need one more. No? Sean, you stand up there in the back, okay? Okay. I know you didn't want me to pick on you, but it's okay. Okay. So, Evan, James, Sean, right? Let's say 
let's say that I'm going to go away on an extended trip. And I'm going to be gone for a couple years. And I tell you guys that I'm going to send you money every month. And all I want you to do is give 10% to my family. Okay? That's all I'm asking. I just need you to be a steward of the finances that I give you for my wife and kids while I'm gone financially. And I'm going to give you each $10,000 a month. And all you have to do is send Ashley a 1000 of it. That's it. The remaining 90%, you can do anything you want with it. That's a pretty good deal, right? It's a good deal. Listen, this is just an illustration. Okay? You guys start to get excited there all of a sudden. You're like, yeah, I'm in now. I should have stood up. Just, 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 just an illustration. Okay? So, a few months go by, and I call Ashley, and I say, uh, hey, how, how are the finances doing? And she says, uh, Evan is sending $1,000 a month just like you asked, like clockwork, just on it. And, and James, he, he, uh, he's actually sending $2,000 a month. And I go, really? Why is he doing that? I, I only asked him to give you 1000 Well, I, I don't know. He just is. He's sending $2,000 a month. Well, wh- what about Sean? Well, she says, Sean is, um, we need to talk about Sean. Now, the, first month, he, the first month he sent 800, and, and then the next month he, he sent 500, and this month he hasn't sent anything. Are you following this illustration? Follow me. I love my wife. Evan, I'm going to keep sending him 10,000 a month, right? He's doing what I asked him to do. James, I'm going to start sending him twenty thousand. Uh, I can trust this guy. This guy's not only doing what I asked him to do, but he's he's doing above and beyond. And Sean, well, Sean and I have to have a sit down, right? I'm cutting him off because I I can't trust him. Now don't don't get mad at me. You know I love you. Okay, you guys can sit down. Listen, think about this. Think about this. The church. Is whose wife? Jesus' wife. The bride of Christ. And Jesus says, I'm going away for a little bit. And I want you to be a good steward of my bride while I'm away. And all I want you to do is give her 10%. You can keep the 90. That's it. And the ones that give 10%, God's going to keep taking care of them and providing for them. And the ones that give more, he's going to give more to. He's going to trust more to. And the ones that he can't trust. Let me tell you. Here's what Evan and James and Sean were showing me. Their willingness to take care of, of my wife and family showed me, yes, that they cared about my wife. But they're really showing how much they love me. Because they're willing to do what I asked them to do. And they were showing me that their character was in their stewardship or lack thereof. We're showing God our character in our stewardship, how we take care of his bride, and we're letting him know how much we love him by our willingness to be obedient and to trust him. We're showing him how much we care for his wife because it's really a test of the heart. Last scripture for the morning, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Let me give you some context on this scripture. 
This, these terms, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, were farming terms in their day. All of them understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was always contextualizing his message to his audience. In Israel, during this time, you were supposed to leave the corners of the field for the poor. Okay? You, you sow the inside circle of your field, but you leave the corners only for the poor. And you had workers in the middle that you paid, but the poor people took the corners, but they harvested for free. Both groups had baskets and were gathering a crop. The workers in the middle, you're paying a denarius a day, whatever the rate you that you've agreed, agreed upon. They're filling up their baskets, taking it over to the cart and dumping. Filling up the basket, taking it over to the cart and dumping. They're getting paid to do their work. It doesn't matter how full their baskets are because they're going to be doing it all day long. So if their baskets aren't completely full every time, they just means more trips for them, which means more time, which means you're paying them the next day to do the harvesting of the middle section of your field. What about the poor people on the corners? How are, how are they filling up their baskets? First of all, the fields are on the outside of the city, not downtown in Jerusalem. The poor people live in the city because they don't own land. Land is outside of the city. So they have several miles to get to the fields. And depending upon how early they got up would determine what field they would be able to harvest from on the corners. Are you following me? So they fill their baskets up much more differently than the people that are working and filling their baskets up and just dumping it on the cart. Why? Because they only have probably enough time to take one trip that day to a field. And if they did have time, they'd have to walk even further to find another field that hadn't already been harvested. So how do you think they filled their baskets up? First thing they did was they would put a good measure in it, right? They would fill it up as high as they could. The second thing they would do would be to press it down, pushing it down. You know how like when your uh, trash can is overflowing and you don't feel like taking the trash out and you walk up to the trash and what do you do? Oh, someone will get that next time. I won't get that. I've never done that ever, honey. In our 20 years together, I've never done that. How do you think... Good measure, pressed down. The third thing they do, what does they do? They shake it to settle it because they want more space. The fourth thing they do is to add more so that it's actually running over as they're carrying their basket back to town. Okay, you got the picture? You got this picture, right? Jesus says, if you give, it will be given back to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken Running over. Here's the principle. If you give, you'll always get back more. The way God works. It's sowing and reaping. For example, you sow an apple seed, you reap an apple tree with many apples, with each apple having many seeds. It's way more than you sowed. It's the way that God is. Here's, here's, my, here's my problem with this verse, is the way that it's been preached and taught. This is simply the benefit of giving not the motive. God says, if you'll give, let me, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give back to you good measure, pressed down, shaken, running over. But we preached this verse in the churches to try to pe get people to give like they, like they should be the motivation. Trent said it on the video. I'm not giving to get. Sure, it's a benefit, but that's not the motive. 
If that is the motive, that's greed. That's selfishness. That's not the motive for real giving. This is the, the benefit. Can you imagine how God feels when he hears someone say, man, if you'll give, you'll get back. And I'm sure he just stands up in heaven and goes, oh, they've got it. They've, they've really grasped this idea that if they give, they were going to get back. Think that's really what he wants for us? No. To give out of our hearts. And when we do, let's give just a little more context on this verse here. If we go back just a few more verses, Luke chapter 6, verse 30, prior to these verses. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Now, I don't know how many of us do that. How many of us lend money and pray, Oh, Lord, I hope they don't pay me back. Hmm? That's what he's saying here. Verse 36, therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Verse 37, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will, not be, and you will be forgiven. Verse 38, and give, and it will be given. You know what he's saying? Give just to give, expecting nothing in return. Give to people, bless people, be a blessing let God do a work in your heart. And when God does a work in your heart, you'll give just to give. But if you give to get, to receive back, you've missed the whole point of giving, friend. God gives us a test. And when we change our hearts and become like Him, the most well-known verse in all the Bible, God so loved the world that He, he gave. He gave. You want to be more like God? Give. When we become givers like him, then the results, you can't argue with them. Because God says, if I can do a work in your heart, I promise you, I'll give back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Thanks again for joining us. If you want to join us on Sunday, we meet at 1030 a.m. right next to Wilson Central High School. Or check us out online at connectchurchtn.com. Thanks so much and have a blessed day.